He uh, did an MDiv at Westminster Seminary in California, uh, and also a PhD at Calvin Theological Seminary on Johannes Coxeus. For those who don't know Johannes Coxeus, he's one of the all-time great covenant theologians in Reformed history. So if you have any questions about the details of covenant theology, this is your chance. It's time to pull out, you know, what should we think about the Mosaic Covenant? How does it fit with the others? And I'm putting him on the spot, but you know, tee, tee it up. You got, we got an expert here. But beyond just uh, his uh, academic work, Ryan is a pastor. He planted a uh, URC church where he still pastors now in D.C., and preaches regularly, and it's always wonderful when that great theology is united with the proclamation of the gospel in the context of the church. So I'm very excited to hear him come now and share God's word with us. Thank you, Brian. Well, good evening. It is a special privilege to be invited to participate uh, in this Reformation Day service. 45th annual, although as we were discussing, we now have a, a gap year. So it's the 46th year in the 45th annual, at least as far as we know, unless there are other gap years. So we might have to go to some of the uh, congregational historians here. Well, uh, before I open up God's word for us tonight, and we'll be reading from Romans chapter 4, I just want to frame up this text in the context of Reformation Day. And there's something of a a caricature of Reformed Christians um, as being kind of pointy-headed people, being a little uptight about doctrine, Uh, brains on sticks in the expression of uh, one commentator. And we don't play to this type perhaps any more than we do on Reformation Sunday. I mean, you know, how many churches have Latin phrases up on banners, unless they're medieval Latin churches, right? Um, but that's us. And so we, we celebrate faith alone tonight. And the, the title of my sermon is, Why We Must Be Saved by Faith Alone. But I think it's so important for us to remember that this is not an abstract doctrine. The doctrine of the gospel, justification by grace alone through faith alone on account of Christ alone, is something that gives birth to a way of living the Christian life. Uh, Our catechism, which we read from tonight, the Heidelberg Catechism, follows this pattern of instruction, guilt, grace, and gratitude. And that's what the Christian life looks like. Luther's first of the 95 theses was a reminder that doing penance was not something that we did as a work to deliver ourselves from the punishment of sin, but the Christian was called to a daily life of repentance. We're daily mindful of our sins and turn to Christ. Um, And this Reformation backdrop to the doctrine of justification might seem like a dusty old historical unearthing of a a doctrine that's not so relevant today when when people think that doctrine divides us. But I was uh, listening to a podcast this week a uh, conversation with Jaron Lanier, who's one of the, one of the uh, uh, technologists, the architects of the internet. And he's uh, very repentant for what he's given birth to. Um, but he was asked the question, do you think the world in which we live is getting better or worse? It's kind of an interesting question. You know, are you an optimist or a pessimist, right? It's one of those fundamental questions. And he said, well, that's, that's a difficult question to answer because on average, you can't deny that we're more prosperous, we're wealthier, we're living longer, we've lifted millions out of poverty in the last uh, 50 years, out of starvation. And that's all undeniably, you can calculate the benefits of modern technology and advances. But then on the flip side, he said that there are a growing number of individuals today who are living life on the edge. Whether it's economic insecurity, Uh, maybe they don't have health insurance, they're they're one disease, one paycheck away. Um, This service didn't happen last year because we were all on the edge, little did we know, of having our our churches shut down by a global pandemic. That's been a little bit anxiety-inducing, don't you think? One of the interesting things about this conversation is that he said, you know, I live in Silicon Valley and 
I have a lot of friends who are billionaires, and my billionaire friends feel like they're living life on the edge. The world seems to be spinning out of control. And as I listened to this conversation, I said, you know, that's not so different than the world that Luther lived in. Luther had a uh, prince, Frederick the Wise, who founded the University of Wittenberg, where Luther was a professor. And uh, Frederick the Wise was one of the billionaires of his age. He had all these lands, had all these estates, had untold wealth and power in his realm. And, you know, he spent the vast majority, a large portion, let's say, of his wealth on collecting relics. This was a practice of the medieval church, and you can find different accounts online. I couldn't nail it down. It's somewhere between 17,000 and 19,000 relics in one of the largest uh, relic collections in Western Europe. Now, a relic was uh, a little fragment, a little piece, an object of something. If any of you, I grew up in a Catholic church. If any of you know, a lot of churches are are sanctified by the possession of, of some sort of relic, perhaps under the altar or in a different spot. And so among his collection, Frederick the Wise had the thumb of St. Anne, uh, sounds a little morbid, uh, a twig from the burning bush in Exodus, um, he had some hay from the holy manger, and um, some milk of Mary, that was very popular, I, uh, this isn't actually in my notes, but Calvin was, you might not know this, you know, everyone thinks he's a pretty dour guy, but he was something of a satirist and a comedian. Uh, Calvin actually wrote a, a comic account of all the relics in Europe. It was called the Catalog of Relics. And he calculated that, you know, there were 17 gallons of Mary's milk lying around somewhere. And then from all the wood of the true Holy Cross, you know, you could build a cathedral. Um, so these accounts of these relics were some, somewhat dubious. But the reason he collected these relics was because Frederick the Wise, the wealthiest man in the realm, was living on the edge. The church, by design, for hundreds of years, had uh, taught that fear was the best motivator for good works. Doubt was the most pious position to have. Only a true saint could ever have true knowledge that they were saved for sure. And even that was highly doubtful. You could never know you were a true saint until after you were probably dead and canonized. These insecurities were built into the system of faith, of the Christian faith. There were indulgences for visiting these relics and praying before them. And some even calculate that all of these thousands of relics in Frederick the Wise's collection totaled to 1,902,202 years and 270 days out of purgatory. If you offered the correct offerings and oblations before each one of them. If, you, if there were enough days in your life, right? Which brings me to Luther, sort of the hero of Reformation Day, right? And my favorite story about Luther is that he himself was someone constantly living on the edge. His, his mentor, when he entered the monastery, said, you got to slow down a little bit, Luther. All the, the fasting and the midnight prayers and the vigils, you're going to kill yourself. And he sent Luther to Rome in 1510. This is before uh, the nailing of the 95 Theses in 1517 on the door of the church in Wittenberg. And Luther went to Rome to behold all the great glories of the church, to strengthen his faith. And part of the story of, of visiting Rome in the medieval church was you would see the great power and glory. It must be true. This is kind of like America. If it's so big, if it's so successful, it has to be true, right? And Luther was, uh, he recounts, later in his life, that he was somewhat disgusted by the greed and the avarice. A lot of the, the priests in the church kept, you know, prostitutes on the side. And, and there was a business in Rome of bringing the, the silly pilgrims in and fleecing them of all their money. But nonetheless, Luther was still bought into the system, though he was beginning to doubt it. He was studying the Psalms. And he went to the Scala Sancta in St. John Lateran, the medieval seat of uh, the Catholic Church in Rome. The Scala Sancta were the holy stairs of uh, Pilate's uh, praetorium in Jerusalem. Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine, had brought them to Rome. And uh, there are still, to this day, a flight of stairs in St. John Lateran. 
And they're often covered by wood. Sometimes I think they've, they've refurbished them and uncovered them. Uh, I've visited. You can visit. And there are drops of, of blood from Christ still mark and stain the Scala Sancta. And if you go up on your knees, Pope Pius VII in 1817 said that you get nine years out of purgatory per step on your way up. And so Luther began his climb. And as he later recounted with each step up, it's kind of ironic, the Holy of Holies is at the top, actually, of the Scala Sancta, if you ever visit. And as he was climbing up each step of the way, he began to doubt a little more. And finally, about halfway up, he said, who knows if any of this is true? And out of this this question, right, living on the edge is... Uh, kind of the backdrop to the Protestant Reformation. It's the question of assurance, of Christian comfort. And though we have these wonderful solas of the Reformation, we often speak of of two pillars, the uh, material and the formal principle of the Reformation, sola scriptura and sola fide, scripture alone and faith alone. And these two pillars tell us how we know what is true by the word of God. And how we know that our salvation is sure because it is based through faith alone on Christ alone. And so Luther stopped his ascent. He got up and turned around and walked back down. Well, if you do visit the Scala Sancta now, I was there. It was when I was there anyway, 22 years ago, give or take. Uh, there was a plaque on the bottom. It's a very interesting plaque. It says, no one really knows if these are the steps from the Praetorium in Jerusalem, but these steps have been sanctified by the piety of pilgrims who've come here over the centuries. As long as we think they're some real relic, they might confer some grace upon us. And Luther, at that time anyway, actually gets a mention in the plaque. The plaque says Martin Luther came here in 1510, but couldn't make it all the way to the top. Luther was weary of living on the edge, and I think we are all as well. This, this edginess of, of life today, it's not just the chaos of modern life or global supply chains or polarized politics. It is, um, it's written on our hearts. It has to do with our sin. And uh, we need to look in every age to the Word of God alone. And we need to look to Scripture alone for a foundation upon which we build. Paul writes to the Romans in the text we're going to read today that um, these words were not only spoken to Abraham, but they were written by Moses for us today, Paul says. What a great uh, image of our understanding of the inspiration of Scripture. And these words, which we read uh, right now in Romans chapter 4, were written for us today as well. They're as important and relevant for us today as they were for Paul and the Roman church. Now, as I read this passage, I know it's, it's a little bit of a long reading, but it all hangs together. It opens and closes by talking about justification. And there are some key words here I'm going to tip you off uh, to the, at the front end too. First of all, Abraham is the center of this story. His name comes up eight times, but he's referred to uh, by pronouns, he or him, another 24 times. So Abraham is throughout this text. Paul is giving us a picture. He's not teaching a doctrine. He's telling a story. And this is so important about the Christian faith. Justification, the gospel, is a story about how God saves us. Another word that pops up a lot here is faith, or it's very many forms, believer, belief, believe. 17 times. But what Paul is really talking about here is Abraham's faith and this idea of it being counted or reckoned as righteousness. This comes straight from Genesis 15, 6, which he quotes many times. And it comes as well from Psalm 32, which we sang, where the psalmist tells us that in the forgiveness of our sins, our sins are not counted against us. 
So our faith is counted for righteousness and our sins are not counted against us. That's the biblical teaching of the gospel and justification. John Calvin, when he was, uh, we'll look a little bit at this word counted, what it means, but when John Calvin uh, translated this text in his commentaries, he has sort of his own translation there, he used the word imputed. I'm sure you've all heard in the teaching of justification how important is it that we understand that Christ's righteousness is imputed, counted to us. So three broad outlines, and they roughly track with the three-thirds of this text. By faith alone, God justifies the wicked and counts them righteous. That'll be our first point. The second point, by faith alone can all the nations of the earth be blessed, Jew and Gentile. And the third point, by faith alone, God saves by creating something from nothing. There's one line in each one of those three sections that really sums up each of those ideas. So let's turn now to God's holy word, Romans chapter 4. And we'll read the entire chapter. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Well, there are uh, a month, a year of sermons in this text, right? And what I want to try to do is, is step back and see the forest here of Paul's 
argument. Uh, This passage hangs together. You see how it talks about Abraham and his faith and his experience, and quoting from many uh, parts of the story from Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, even pointing forward to Genesis 22. Paul has this expansive way of preaching the text of the Old uh, Testament. And remember, the, the epistle to the Romans began with this wonderful thesis statement. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is Paul's thesis, which he is going to unpack and explain again and again throughout these opening 11 chapters in particular. And Paul unfolds this by first telling the negative story, right? The righteousness of God is revealed uh, in creation and in God's law, in God's wrath. By the law, there is no justification. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so he turns then from that first three chapters of talking about how God's righteousness is known through the law. We know a holy God through creation. And he reminds us that everyone knows that there is such a God. To how apart from the law. In chapter 3 verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all believers. This is the good news. This is the gospel. It's not written on our hearts. We can't figure it out by going for a walk in nature. It's not intuitive. It is news because we need to hear it from outside of ourselves. Not just once. Again and again. We default. We revert to law keeping. But Paul is here developing something that he does clearly as well in Galatians, this contrast between being justified by the works of the law or by grace or faith or promise. These two things are held in contrast, law and gospel. And the gospel shape of the Christian life is that that life that Luther held forth when he said the entire life of believers is one of repentance. So Paul tells the story of Abraham as a concrete picture of the gospel, of why we must be justified by faith alone. And this first element is that justification, being declared righteousness by faith, means being declared righteous when we are ungodly, when we are wicked. It is an accounting term, this word uh, counted or reckoned or imputed. Metaphorically, it could mean uh, to think about or to consider something, but Paul is saying something more uh, strong here when he's talking about justification. It's a declaration of God. Abraham believed and God counted and declared to him that he was righteous. It's the central theme. Half of the New Testament uses of this word are in Romans, 20 out of 40, and 10 of those are here in this chapter. Abraham is not justified by works of obedience or anything he could do. Paul explains in a most clear fashion when he says this in the opening verses, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes, but faiths, trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So the worker is due his wages. The law says, if you do this, you will live. And if you were able to perform the law, God would be bound to give you life as much as an employer is bound to give you your paycheck at the end of the pay period. You have earned it. But Paul contrasts that with the one who doesn't work. He doesn't mean this believer does no works at all, but he's saying as goes to his salvation, as to his standing before God, Nothing he does contributes to it. He's the not worker. And not only is the not worker not doing any work, not fulfilling the demands, he's not failing to acquire the merits or the credits, he's getting demerits. He's violating the law. We, uh, as uh, Heidelberg Catechism, which we recounted to write, we never fulfill the law. We build up our debt more and more every day. Now, you might think that Abraham, in a sense, is a perfect example for the Jews to learn this lesson. After all, 
They lived 430 years before the law was even around, the law of Moses, right? He couldn't do the works of the Mosaic law. He is reckoned righteous, and this is a big part of Paul's point here, in Genesis 15. Circumcision's not commanded even until Genesis 17. He wasn't even obedient to the command to circumcise himself and his sons before he was declared righteous. So Paul is making a chronological point, but he's doing more than that because a lot of the Jews of Paul's day, the rabbis, believed that Abraham was a perfectly pious individual. They actually used to teach that Abraham fulfilled all the laws of of Moses in a a proleptical way, like ahead of time, like he had the, the inside scoop. But Abraham, not only was he a sinner who was happy to lie about his wife when he was in Egypt with Pharaoh. Abraham, Paul says, was a wicked person. He, like all of us, had fallen short of the glory of God. And this is the first and key element of being justified by faith alone. And this is why we say alone. Because we add nothing to this faith but our own wickedness. Abraham here is portrayed as the one who believes in the God who justifies wicked people. That means Abraham's faith itself has the content that I am a sinner who needs grace. This is a humbling faith. Paul is explicit here. To be justified does not mean that you are made gradually a better person that God can finally on the last day of judgment bless and say, well done, my good and faithful son. It's not a process, which is exactly what the prevailing view of the medieval church taught. Uh, The technical term here, not imputation, where the righteousness of Christ is credited and granted, given to us as a gift. But the term you might hear is infusion. Grace is poured into us. It's like putting a tea bag in a glass-sided teapot, and you see the black water start to ooze out from the tea bag. The medieval church taught that we were saved by faith. But it wasn't faith alone. It was faith formed by love. We play the same game today, don't we? How strong is your faith? How good is your faith? Do you have an active faith? Are you, are you, can you get on the ball for Jesus? Do you witness to your faith? Are you doing everything you can? And in these subtle ways, so often, our faith is undermined as a source of comfort and confidence and peace. We look to our faith and not to Christ. But Paul is explicit here. God justifies the ungodly. And he doubles down by going to another use in the Old Testament of the same term, Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. There's that same word count. But notice this time it's not counting. So by faith we're counted righteous and by faith we're also not counted guilty. But who is the subject of this blessing? Who receives this blessing? A sinner. When? When they've cleaned themselves up? No. A sinner whose sins are covered. You see the metaphor? They're still there. But they're covered by the righteousness of Christ. A sin, sinner whose sins God doesn't count. They're still there. And we can and will in The epistle to the Romans talk about how this message of justification does transform us. There are good works in the Christian life. But we don't stand on those good works before God for our righteousness. So Paul, throughout his epistle, will say uh, that that this is a, a key point. And it's interesting and more maybe even offensive to the Jews, to realize that this seems contrary to what the Bible says about God's justice and holiness. Proverbs seventeen fifteen, He who justifies the wicked, wait, that's, what, that's just what Paul said, God does, and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Well, that's not so good. Keep far from a false charge, Exodus 23 The law says, do not kill the innocent and righteous, for the Lord says, I will not acquit the wicked. Well, that's exactly what Paul said he was doing, declaring the wicked to be innocent, acquitting him. Isaiah 23, 
5.23, sorry. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who call dark light and light dark. Sometimes it feels like a lot of people in the world are doing that these days, doesn't it? Whichever side of the political divide you're on, it's like we can't talk to each other, and the other side's looking at a different world. Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of a sight. And yet, Paul says, it is God who does this. And so Paul's burden here is to put this as bluntly as he can. And this is why in the previous chapter, when he introduced this teaching of righteousness by faith, he said, in this way, God is the just and the justifier. He remains just while declaring sinners to be innocent. And the big question is how? He does so in Christ. That's what Paul has already hinted to. Abraham was justified when he was uncircumcised. Paul will say in the next chapter, when we were enemies, Christ died for us. In 2 Corinthians 5, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting, same word, not counting their trespasses against them. For our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. How? How does the sinless, eternal son of God become sin? Is he actually a sinner? No, may it never be. Our sins are imputed to him, credited to him, so that in him, he continues, we might become the righteousness of God. We are counted righteousness in this great exchange. He is convicted. We are acquitted in the next chapter of Romans will tie this to another story, the story of the first Adam and the second Adam. It's so much better when you tell stories than teach doctrines, really. Thus the promise comes to Abraham, not by the law, not by the works of the law, but by faith, and by faith that is apart from the law. And this is where Luther gets that translation, faith alone. I was reading a commentary on this text this week and said, you know, a lot of people in the church at that time said, well, the word alone is not in this text. Luther added it. Luther says sola scriptura. Then he goes adding German words to it left and right willy-nilly. Well, when the point of the whole text is faith apart from the law, Luther said, and not only that, as you look back in the history of the church, Chrysostom, Augustine, countless number of prior uh, translators and interpreters had talked about faith alone in this passage. Luther was not innovating. This antithesis between law and gospel is so strong that Paul can say in verse 14, for it is the adherence of the law, if it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. The law doesn't get you the blessing or this promise. If you qualify for this inheritance, Paul says, you're disqualified. You inherit when you acknowledge that you don't deserve it. That you have no right to it. And this is where we get that wonderful summary statement we confessed this morning. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, of still being inclined toward all evil, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits, counts, reckons, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, if only, if only, I accept this gift with a believing heart. So the first real plank of this doctrine is that the blessing of justification comes to sinners. In Luther's ever pithy language, we're simultaneously sinners and saints. It's not by being transformed that you become justified. It is when you are found in your sin and confess your sin that you are declared righteous and counted righteous in Christ by faith. And this brings me to my second main point where Paul transitions into this discussion of circumcision. Now, this might seem a little complicated, and frankly, Paul's kind of doing a little rapid-fire a rabbinical dispute thing here that gets a little hard to follow. But it's very important, and my second main point is that we need to be saved by faith alone because only by faith alone can all the nations of the earth share in this blessing. 
Paul's gospel is the power of God for salvation. And it's no mistake that in his summary, he says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Because that inclusion of the whole world in the proclamation of the gospel was inherent to the gospel itself. That was the good news. No one within the sound of Paul's voice, no one who could hear the preacher was any further from God than anyone else. None of you here. Nothing you have done. Maybe you're living on the edge. Maybe you're fighting an addiction. Maybe your marriage is about to fall apart. Maybe you're old and weary and about to die. None of you are farther from the gospel than the sound of a preacher's voice. Faith comes through hearing. Paul will say in chapter 10. And this has not only a personal dimension as as that wicked person being justified, but it has a social and cultural dimension. It impacts our missionary calling. We're all here in this, what shape is this? Octagonal? We were talking about octagons this morning at church. This is a pentagon? We're at the pentagon? I thought that's in Arlington. Oh, seven. Okay. That's a good biblical number. We're here in this building, right? But the gospel's as much for the people outside this building as for the people inside the building. And the Jews had a really hard time with this, but really not much harder. We we beat up on the Jews, right? Not much harder than Christians in America. We're really good about using God's law, about beating up on the world, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery, you shall not steal. We could go on and on about how we live in a world of great sin. We're not so good about being humble and confessing our own sins. We're not so great about taking the gospel to that world always. The world out there is as fit for saving, as close to salvation as you are. God's gospel and his spirit. We have no advantage. And so in this tribal time we're in, I struggle with this so much. You turn on the news, whether you listen to a radio or a podcast on the right or the left, and the demonization of the other side, they're stupid, they're dumb, they're evil, they're wicked. Any more so than we are? The sad truth is no. And so it's very easy to be lulled into this sense that that we're on the right side of history, right? The arc of history is, is curving and we're on the right side of the curve. Paul says, is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And the amazing thing that he digs out of this story of Abraham, not only did he not fulfill the law of Moses 430 years ahead of time, The amazing things he digs out of this story of Abraham is that the gospel, righteousness, came to a non-Jew first. He starts by saying, Abraham, our father, according to the flesh. And of course, all the Jews, right? They said to Jesus, our father Abraham, we're sons of our father Abraham. And Jesus said, I can raise up sons of Abraham from the rocks. Paul would soon be beaten after writing this letter and almost executed for this teaching. Because he went to Jerusalem with a Gentile friend of his. And even though he didn't take his Gentile friend into the temple precincts, because he, he followed that proscription, the sign, that the Gentiles might not go beyond this particular court. In Acts 21, we read that the Jews seized Paul and began beating him, probably with the intent to stone him. Why? This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and against this holy place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple. They can't even step foot without defiling it. So Paul's not messing around here. He's signing his death warrant in certain circles by what he's teaching. Not only was Abraham not a Mosaic law-abiding Jew, Abraham wasn't even circumcised when his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And circumcision wasn't even a part of the Mosaic law. Circumcision isn't a law in any sense. And that's what Paul says here in this beautiful, pithy way. This is a sermon all of its own. Circumcision as a sign and a seal of the righteousness by faith. If you ever have a conversation, I can't think of a better verse with a Baptist who says, no, those Old Testament promises, those weren't gospel promises. Circumcision is a sign and a seal of the righteousness that comes by faith. That's the same gospel promise which saves us. That's signified to us by the waters of baptism, which Paul will talk about in chapter 6. But the amazing thing of this circumcision sign is Paul says, it's sealed righteousness 
to a wicked person before they were circumcised. There could be no better story of how we're saved by faith alone. Abraham is the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Ooh, that hurts. Paul has pulled the flipperoo on the Jews. Abraham is a better model, a better example of an uncircumcised Gentile than of a Jewish believer who's gone to synagogue every day of his life. So that righteousness, Paul writes, would be counted to them as well, even for Gentiles. And then he'll say later on, this was written for our sake, for us. And he twists the knife even further. This is where it gets kind of choppy in the language. He piles up words, but he says, to make him also the father of the circumcised, but not those who are merely circumcised, the, the circumcised who also walk in the footsteps of faith. In other words, he's saying, all you who are circumcised and think you're special, that means nothing apart from faith. You children of Abraham by the flesh, if you have faith, Abraham's your father. If not, nada. And believe like Abraham did before his foreskin was cut. Thus Paul concludes in verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Why does this matter for us today? First, we are, uh, there is this personal aspect. Uh, we are not living on the edge in our Christian faith. Life is a struggle. The pilgrimage is hard. And, and Luther writes movingly about nothing being more difficult than trusting in Christ alone. It's not the way we're built. We have this assurance. Our status as righteous children of God is grounded in faith alone, is absolutely secure. And Rome would go on to condemn Luther's confidence, the confidence of heretics, it called it. But there's also this social and cultural sense that we as a church must celebrate and continually check ourselves and and be reforming ourselves. This message, this gospel, this celebration isn't for us. Certainly not for us alone. It's for all those out there in the world who Christ has called us to be his witness to, to take the gospel to. Christian believers are in no way superior to our neighbors in the world, according to the righteousness that merits before God. We need to recapture the humble spirit of witness to Christ alone. You know, we are living in this age of virtue signaling. I'm sure you all know what that means. Depends, again, which side of the aisle you're on, which virtues you signal, but we all do it. But see, it's so ironic, isn't it? We don't believe in God, but we all signal virtue. Why is virtue so important? Because we're like Frederick the Wise. We're all keeping track, right? We all want to feel virtuous, to be on the right side of things. Luther told Melanchthon, who struggled and doubted his faith, he said, Philip, this is his assistant in Wittenberg, He said, you need to go out and sin boldly. You need to go out and sin boldly and seek forgiveness boldly. I'm not giving that counsel here tonight. I'm just reading a Luther quote. That can get you a lot of trouble, right? Just reading Luther quotes from the pulpit. But we need to vice signal a little more. We're sinners saved by grace. Is the church humble enough in our age? I certainly don't think so. And when we cultivate this humble spirit, and we do so by living daily lives of guilt, grace, and gratitude, confessing our sins, seeking God's forgiveness, we need to remain fervent, friends, for our brothers and sisters, our family members, for the lost. We need to remain fervent in prayer for them. We need to remain fervent, friends, in deeds of love and service to the world that our neighbors might know that we live in hope in this world. We need to remain fervent in that hope and have such hope and confidence that King Jesus rules and reigns this world of chaos that people will ask us, why are you so hopeful? Why are you so happy? I worry sometimes that Christians are, are the most fearful in the world today, right? We're, we're newly uh, living in this nation of the nuns, not, not uh, in the convent, not like the nuns with the habits on their head the ordered women of the Catholic Church, the the nation where the majority of people who are polled, younger people at least, say, I have no religious affiliation whatsoever. It's very unsettling for us Christians to be on the downslope culturally. 
to be in a shrinking minority, and we are shrinking, vanishingly shrinking, it means that our missionary task is all the more fervent. Do you think we're smaller in America now than Paul was in Rome, in the Christian church in Rome? So we need to remain fervent and embrace our missionary status, even as a persecuted minority, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church, as the ancient church often repeated. It's by faith alone that we can bear that witness. And this brings us to our third and final point. God does remain just while justifying sinners. And he does so because by faith alone, God saves us by creating something from nothing. God's word is a creative word. Think of Genesis. Let there be, and there was. And that's what Paul is alluding to here when he talks about Abraham in chapter 4, verse 17. And he says, In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's the new creation, brothers and sisters. I don't know if you've ever reflected on this verse before or noticed it. It it catches me every time I read it. Abraham believed that God could make something from nothing. And he was the nothing. Far from having the confidence of a heretic, he knew better that he was a sinner than any of us do. The God in whom Abraham believed gives life to the dead. He calls into existence things that do not exist. All you have to do to receive this blessing is to acknowledge that you are spiritually dead. The thing that is called into existence is that which is counted to us, that which we become, saints, righteous, holy ones. It comes from nothing. It comes from nothing of ours. It's imputed to us, credited to us in Christ. And it will become real and true. The work that he has begun in you will be complete on the day of his glory. Praise God. This is why Luther loves this formula, simultaneously a sinner and a saint. But notice how Paul starts this closing paragraph. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. That is why we must be saved by faith alone. Because it is faith alone that ensures that this promise is by grace, is a gift. And we see this precious word there in the context of living on the edge and the terror and the fear and the insecurity of Luther, this precious word, guaranteed. Certain, trustworthy, verified. Abraham, 2,000 years before Jesus, believed that God could raise from the dead. The author to the Hebrews says that he was willing to sacrifice this child of promise, Isaac. He's over 100 years old now. Isaac's 9, 12 years old. He's 110 years old. He's going to Mount Moriah to offer the sacrifice. And he doesn't believe that God will give him a replacement, that he'll give him another child to take his place. The author to the Hebrews says, for he believed that he would raise this child up from the dead after he sacrificed him and burnt him on the fire. I'm looking at the kids here. Abraham's son, his only son whom he loved. What a picture of God's grace. For the father sent his son to be sacrificed and to die. And the guarantee here is in the resurrection. And Paul says, we are witnesses of Jesus. We've seen the resurrection. And so all of Paul's faith and confidence comes from the risen Christ, the new creation. Abraham is a picture of the regenerative power of the gospel the creative power of God for salvation. He was as good as dead, 100 years old. Sarah's womb was as good as dead. It says barren here, but it was a dead womb. Abraham was 100 years old. He probably wasn't, you know, contributing a lot physically to the reproductive act, if you get my picture. And Sarah was barren. There was nothing there, people. And for 25 years, God said, I will give you this child. I will give you this child. I will give you this child. And Sarah said, yeah, right. All right, name him Isaac. Name him laughter, because you laughed at my promise. Never laugh at the Lord. This is why it depends on faith. 
If you believe in the God who can bring the dead back to life, if you trust in him alone, then you will live. Paul says, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God made us alive together with Christ. And I love how Paul closes this whole beautiful picture of faith alone. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. He sums up this whole thing by coming back to Genesis 15. The promise isn't just for him, it's for us. It was for all the Gentiles. It's for the world. Don't keep this a secret, people. This is for us who believe, for we have seen the real resurrection, the really almighty, powerful act of new creation in Christ Jesus. Anyone who seeks to add to this faith is trying to help the Father raise the Son out of the tomb. Can you do that? This guarantee of grace is the cornerstone of the Reformation teaching of salvation. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. And assurance, the teaching of assurance that came with it. The Roman church in the 1540s condemned this teaching of assurance by faith alone. They said anyone who thinks they can be certain of their salvation on the basis of faith alone is anathema. Tragically, in the Council of Trent session 6, chapter 9. They called it the confidence of heretics. But Luther was not proud. He was humble. Luther, like Abraham, knew that he had nothing to boast about. He trusted in the God that could make something from nothing, that could declare the sinner to be a saint and still be a just and holy God. Well, we have heroes of the Reformation from the 16th century, one of the heroes of the Reformation of the 20th century, shout out to our friends here in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, was our brother J. Gresham Machen. To paraphrase Machen's dying words, which I trust you've all heard before, thank goodness for the imputed righteousness of faith. There is no hope without it. And that should be our closing prayer tonight as well. Let's pray. Father God, you who created the earth and set the mountains on their foundations, you who filled and constrained the seas, you who spoke and lit up the stars of the night sky, we rejoice to know that you have called us preciously, your sons and daughters by faith, not guilty. Well done, my good and faithful son, for Christ has obeyed the law for us as though we had never sinned. We rejoice in that announcement, and we praise your holy name, and we pray that as we go forth from this place, dear Lord, this gospel proclamation will so transform and fill our hearts with gratitude that the world will know and see that there is a hope beyond sight and a king in heaven who longs to gather his church to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our uh, parting hymn tonight,